Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm Jane as the title indicates, what I'm going to be talking about is principally um, a product um, that we have um, on the market, which is Wich University. I call it a product, actually it's completely free to use, um, and, and in fact it's not in any way a sort of commercial product for which, and I'll explain a bit more how that works. Um, but a lot of um, the insight um, that we give around universities is driven by open data. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about kind of how we approach that really, using that open data and really trying to get as much out of it for the end consumer as possible. Um, so I just wondered, a bit of a show of hands, how many people are familiar with which in the room? That's pretty heartening, yeah. <laughs> um, I can report that back. Um, but I mean, I think most of you will probably know us for our expert reviews of household products. and. Um, and indeed, that is a kind of mainstay of what we do at WICH. Um, however, since we were set up in the 1950s, we were actually set up as a social enterprise, and we, are, we remain a not-for-profit organisation um, with a charitable arm. So all of the commercial work that we do goes into actually funding our charitable work. And our charitable work is around really um, consumer rights and being consumer champions. And our mission is to make consumers as powerful as the organisations that they deal with in everyday life. Uh, and so that's really where we're coming from in terms of this work, which as I say, isn't to a commercial end, it's actually just trying to help people. And um, we campaign on a whole range of issues, right back to when we didn't used to have seatbelts in this country and bringing in the law for seatbelts, right through to very sort of contemporary issues like the mis-selling of um, payment protection insurance. Um, over the last couple of years, we have looked more and more at um, public services and actually what role we could play as a consumer champion in those areas. Um, with the open public services kind of initiative being driven through by this government, but it's one that really follows on from previous governments as well, there's more and more kind of um, consumer um, dimensions to public services these days. Um, and in considering that, it doesn't take you long to get into, well, actually what's the role of open data then in helping people with their decisions about public services? because such a lot of open data relates to the work of the government, the work of the public sector. So um, we're interested in particular in three sectors, health, elderly care, and higher education. And we started off with higher education, um, principally because this is an area of public service where choice has long been uh, established, um, and actually where there is um, a, a wealth of open data as well. Um, so I'm going to sort of talk you through how we approach that. But before I do that, I wanted to give a bit of a warning and say this is not going to be a technical presentation. So how many people in the room would consider themselves sort of techies in the data field? Okay, let's say maybe half and half. So I've maybe got some chance of uh, hopefully resonating with you guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't represent the technical part of this work, although I've been heavily involved in, in all the considerations that have been going on. Um, but really what I wanted to talk about today was really applying open data, applying it to an actual um, a problem. So trying to find a solution from open data to a problem. And the problem being, which university do I choose to go to and what course do I choose to study? And so why is that particularly pertinent to look at at the moment? Well, um, 
few people in this room and outside of this room um, won't be aware of the increase in fees that came in last year. So now universities can charge up to £9,000 in fees and the average fee is actually about £8,500. So the vast majority are charging at that top end. Um, there's more choice than ever. Um, there are more than 30,000 undergraduate degrees available to apply to um, in the UK um, from more than 300 providers. Um, and actually, with the sort of um, changes that have happened um, in um, higher education, an awful lot of those providers are further education colleges offering higher education. So it's a shifting kind of domain. Um, and, and all of that together, you know, people could be looking at around £50,000 of debt if they took out their full student loans for maintenance um, and to cover their fees as well. So um, it's a big decision. I guess it's always been a big decision because, you know, actually we all know where you go to university, what you study does have lifelong implications. But I think now the stakes have been raised because of these changes. Um, so really, when we started looking at, well, how could we help people with this choice and what data is most relevant to them, uh, we took a, a, a survey of last year's applicants to find out, well, what were they interested in? Um, and actually, it's fair to say um, that um, students, prospective students, aren't super researchers. You know, they're not kind of, by and large, getting into the detail of the data that's currently out there about courses. Um, they actually look at relatively few sources, rely very heavily on the information provided by universities themselves, the information provided by UCAS, friends and family, that sort of thing. But we did ask them, what did you actually research? And the, the top sort of four areas, three of them were around the academic experience. So what's the course content like, what's the reputation, and what's the quality of the academic facilities? And then distance from home is a kind of like a hygiene factor in there, if you like. But overwhelmingly, when you speak to, grad, um, to um, undergraduates, at the moment their mind is very focused on um, employment and the reason for going to university is to improve their employment outcomes. So it's not surprising that sort of graduate employment performance comes out there as quite a sort of significant research factor as well. But what I think is interesting is that this list reflects a, really, a real mix of kind of soft and hard measures. So actually, yes, of course people want things like, what are my chances of getting a job? But actually, they also want to know, is it going to be a nice place to be? You know, are there going to be people there like me? That sort of thing. Those softer factors are never going to go away. And this is sort of part of me getting to the sort of uh, a theme, if you like, which is um, data can't give you everything. Um, so, having said that, um, data can empower choice. Um, and I'm just going to work through a sort of few examples um, of, of how it can do that. Um, and sort of how we've interpreted that in our service. So, of course, it can empower choice by enabling comparison. Um, and here are a couple of sort of fairly blunt examples of infographics we've put together based on the data that's out there about salaries based on what university you go to, what subject you study. Um, and, you know, actually this is nothing new because league tables have been kind of aggregating data to this level and representing it, um, you know, um, for many years. Um, but I think what's interesting is that it's this sort of thing that actually starts people thinking about, right, well, there is data there that could inform my choice, and maybe I should be considering some of these things. Um, it's just worth saying we explicitly haven't taken a leave table approach because, you know, that, that area is, is well kind of occupied by the uh, newspapers principally. 
Um, and also, actually, it's only so helpful that lead tables are a blunt instrument and actually we're interested in encouraging students to actually explore the data that is of most interest to them so that they're actually engaged in the choice, not just being served up a kind of a top ten, if you like. So how do we do that? So here's an example, just a screen grab <coughs> from the site um, of um, our comparison page. So. Underneath this, if you were to look at the um, entry for each of these courses, there's just there's swathes of information. Um, but this is just a, a top-level comparison of actually some of the key kind of um, metrics that we have about university performance. Um, and it operates at a more um, uh, disaggregated level than the league tables. So what we have here are a level of course information but then where course isn't available because of a small number of people studying it, it aggregates up to the next level of subject. And here, for computer systems engineering and both of these courses, it's electronic and electrical engineering. And I think what's interesting there is even at a glance, you can see that there are quite distinct differences between those courses in terms of what the data is telling us, in terms of how satisfied students are, the student score, in terms of how many go on to be uh, to go on to be in employment or further study six months after graduation, and indeed their average salary at that stage. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as I go on. So it's useful um, data, open data in higher education to compare courses. Um, it's also useful um, to manage expectations, and actually this is something we've really had feedback from the careers sector which is understanding actually what happens, what the outcomes are, what people experience via data, enables people to really kind of um, go into their university career with a better idea of what they can expect. Um, and this is an example. So this is us merging information from a numerous sources. We've got UCAS information there, and we've got data from the KIS, the key information set, which I'll go on to talk about. Um, and this is really showing you um, how much time you'll spend in lectures versus independent study and also how you'll be assessed and all of this is in the public domain. But as well as allowing you to compare courses, I think the really important thing about this sort of thing is that it should prompt reflection. So actually we know that people transitioning from school into higher education often actually find it a big shift um, for a number of reasons. Often that's about the amount of independent study they're expected to do. Um, often it's about how they'll be assessed with such a high level of um, coursework involved in certain, in certain qualifications now. So um, this, as, as well as allowing comparison, allows people to actually take, take stock and think, right, actually, two quarters of my time is spent in independent study. What does that mean? What's that going to feel like? I, I need to find out more about that. And then data can also help by revealing powerful insights. So um, this is an example, what I want to sort of point to here in particular is the statistic around the percentage of applicants receiving offers. So this is um, a statistic um, from UCAS that um, hasn't previously been in the public domain, so we specifically asked for it and we're the only people to publish it at the moment. Um, and actually they had to sort of consider and consult um, their kind of board and their broader governance body about whether they would release it and we're very pleased that they decided to. Uh, because it's proving to be extremely useful for people. Um, now, as I'll go on to talk about, nothing's black and white, but what it is, is it's an indicator of the likelihood, potentially, of you receiving an offer should you apply to that course. Now, within that are all the factors about you, 
you know, the strength of your application, the strength of others' applications. But when you see certain courses with 12% receiving offers versus others 80%, then that really allows you to start making more informed decisions. And this is particularly important when students have to make five choices and they have to decide, you know, they have to get a backup choice. And actually, it just, make, it just makes for a more intelligent kind of decision-making process about the mix of courses that they might apply to. And that's been fed back to us by careers advisors who are using this, um, as well as students themselves. Um, the other sort of, um, sort of powerful insight, um, which also isn't widely published, um, and um, for instance isn't available as part of the key information set that is published by government, um, are what people actually study before they enter a course and what grades they got. Um, and this is a really complementary piece of data um, to support the sort of entry requirements that universities put out. Because what careers advisors tell us is that actually universities aren't necessarily that explicit in their entry requirements. They might say, right, you need three Bs. They won't necessarily be explicit about what subjects. Well, this helps indicate the sorts of subject people are doing, so you can get a good sense of whether that's the sort of thing that is going to be looked on positively entering that course. And again, caveats around this, none of this is black and white, it's all just data to be interpreted to be used to make better sort of informed decisions. But as I said, data has its limitations, as I'm sure everyone in this room knows. Um, and uh, I'm just going to run through a few of them as we've experienced them in putting together which university. So data is often incomplete. So this is a rather less satisfactory excerpt from our comparison page showing no data, no data, no data. So that actually isn't terribly helpful in making comparisons. Um, and this is a common uh, problem with all data sets. Um, it's particularly um, prevalent in HE data of two sorts. Uh, one is survey-based data, so for instance the student score there is from the National Student Survey and um, quite simply there often aren't enough um, respondents in order to um, actually um, statistically reliably publish those results. Um, and then the, um, the other issue, um, say the applicants receiving offers, that comes from the actual student record um, and um, often there where we're using data from the student record it's around not having enough people to ensure it's non-disclosive. So there are quite considerable limitations on how many students you need to have within a data set in order to be able to publish that data. So that's one limitation in terms of the sort of consumer um, you know, uh, facing side of data. Um, another is that you know, data can be misleading, and I'll just need to sort of talk through this chart a little bit. Um, because um, within the key information set, which is, and I'll, I'll sort of talk about this in a bit now, which is the sort of central data set that was launched last October um, for open data in higher education. Um, and um, it's basically pulling together in a, an essential place most of the key um, open data sets relating to higher education, and you can access them very easily uh, via an API. So it's an improvement on what we had before, where it was actually more um, downloading CSVs, etc. Um, within that key information set, I've shown you the data already. It shows the proportion of time you will spend in different types of learning activity. Um, and what I want to illustrate here is that showing the proportion of time can be relatively misleading if you don't know what the total time is that you're talking about. 
Um, and we conducted a study um, uh, with the Higher Education Policy Institute this year um, into the amount of time students spend um, in, in study, being taught in private study um, and in practical study. Um, and we surveyed over 20,000 people. So a tiny proportion of the student cohort, but still a substantial um, sample size. And what we found was that for any given course, a subject, any given university, there, there were big differences between um, different institutions and different courses. So if you were to look at the um, kids, you could see that in business studies, um, the, the most amount of time you're gonna spend um, being taught is 46%. So there's a course out there, a business studies course, where you'll be taught for 46% of the time. However, according to our total study time that we derived from um, our, our survey, that could equate to anything from eight hours to 18 hours of time. So by itself, knowing that 46% of your time is gonna be spent in um, being taught is only so helpful if you don't know actually what that means in, in terms of real hours. Um, it's not a helpful comparator because you could be looking at another course that actually is 20% of the time but because the total time is greater they might actually be the same so sorry it's a bit of a long-winded way of sort of explaining that you know data is great but it's hugely open to interpretation and indeed misinterpretation and in some instances um, can turn out to be quite misleading and you know data doesn't always give the full picture um, so as I've said, the limitation we believe at which of the kids is that it doesn't include the actual information about the hours you will spend, you will spend being taught or be in um, uh, independent study. And so we actually created this um, interactive data tool based on that data set from the survey I spoke about to allow people to compare universities and subjects or contact hours, class sizes, academic teaching, and um, yeah, and that's it. Um, and actually, um, are, are we all fine, Catherine? Sorry? Uh, yes, yeah. It will, however, override multi-pass. <laughs> 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 I clicked, didn't I, just a moment too soon, so I'm terribly sorry about that. Um, yes, and so I wonder where the one I've just clicked will actually yeah, pop up. I'll pop you out there. I did tell you I'm not overly technical. <laughs> and interestingly, well, I, I guess the reason I kind of wanted to show this is because here we've actually tried to sort of contribute to the open data as well. So this is a completely open um, data source. All of the raw data behind this is in the public domain. Therefore, you know, actually, if you're not just a, um, a consumer, but maybe you're a journalist or a researcher, you can go and help yourself to this. Um, so let's get rid of our rather large um, banner there. And then, um, so, I'm also not that adept at um, using the Mac, there we go. So here, um, what do we want to compare? So let's take a subject, um, well, biological sciences as good as any. Um, and we're looking at contact hours here, and we've got the University of Cambridge. But you can see there that contact hours for biology at the University of Cambridge average just under 25 hours a week, um, compared to a national average from our survey of around 14 hours. Um, and perhaps compare that to Bristol University, um, and you've got 15 hours there. So some quite big differences. 
Likewise, class size is actually very interesting. Because you know, contact hours only tell you so much. Actually, the size of class you're in contributes hugely to um, you know, the quality of the teaching you'll experience. Um, so here the national average is that actually about eight hours is spent in, and the key is somewhat far away, is spent in teaching classes of um, 51 people or more. Um, and then the next proportion, about four hours, 16 to 50. And then small groups, 0 to 15, about two hours. And if we just make the same comparison and we compare Cambridge and Bristol, you see once again there's a very significant difference there between the hours you will be spending in that small um, group teaching. So, you know, this is, this is what we would like to see as part of the kids because we think it's really valuable um, data. Um, but at the moment, the sector aren't particularly on board with adding that for, for all sorts of, of reasons. Um, so I should just head back to uh, my presentation. I think is that there? Uh, yeah. Um, so it doesn't give the full picture, but sometimes we can add to that picture ourselves. Um, and this is another example of that. So um, you remember those factors that students were interested in? Well, the non-academic stuff was important to people, but there's very little in the official data sets. It's not that surprising to do with um, non-academic aspects of student life. So once again, um, we sort of stepped in and kind of tried to fill that gap. So each year we um, survey 10,000 students across um, about 300 institutions to get these kind of um, insights, you know, first person accounts. Um, but also we asked them to describe their university according to a range of um, kind of extracurricular act activities. So they're, they're down the bottom, they're not terribly clear, but I'll read them out. So, um, how diverse is the local nightlife? How strong is the union nightlife? How political is that university? How creative, how sporty? These are really important factors for people. And we're not trying to say, is it good, is it bad? We're just saying, how much is it like this? Um, and actually, this is really proven popular, and it, it allows us to um, supply a filter on the search that allows people to also narrow down. I really want to go to a sporty university. They can narrow that down. So, um, and also, another point I'd like to make is that you know, data by itself um, is not enough. It's not enough for consumers to derive the full benefits of it, is what I'm saying. Um, so the government's um, push to release more and more open data is laudable, absolutely, um, but that in itself is not going to meet the end consumer need. Um, without kind of information intermediaries to transform that data and derive value out of it and add context to it, um, certainly from a consumer-facing point of view, um, it really won't hit the mark. Um, we really believe there's a need um, to curate that data in order to release the full power to consumers, and that's, that's been our approach. So just a little, a little bit about how we've done that. So um, people need help interpreting the data. What does it mean? A uh, little bit small here, but you know, we have um, linked each of the data points where they appear. We have links through to articles such as this, so what does the percentage of applicants receiving course offers tell me? Because as I've said before, it's not black and white. Um, so you know, here we've got a careers expert to talk through what it may mean. Equally, data needs to be <coughs> contextualised. So how can I use it? So in a way, even why are you showing me this kind of thing? So you know, we, what we've got here is a kind of little pop-up next to the how you'll spend your time. You know, find a course that matches your preferred way of learning. You know, bear in mind that similar courses from uni to uni may be taught differently. 
etc. So it's really just that, you know, enabling um, further reflection. And then really also relativities are crucial. So really, is that better than that? And I think this is probably like the biggest kind of um, drawback of sort of data for consumer consumption is that actually, it, you know, it's a question of interpretation. Actually, you might have, especially in HE, the sorts of, um, particularly for satisfaction with courses, there aren't huge differences. You don't get that many courses where 90% of people are satisfied in some and 60% are in others. And you could sort of say, actually, yeah, I can tell, you know, 90% is greater than 60%. Quite often, the differences are much closer than that. Um, so we have actually, for kind of three key metrics, um, so that's the uh, proportion of people employed after six months, the average salary and satisfaction, um, actually carried out statistical analysis in order to be able to say what is high and what is low for a given subject, because that's also very important. You know, I'm looking at English, I want to know is this high or low for English, because quite frankly, I know I won't earn as much with an English degree after six months as I would with a medicine degree. So once again, the relativity has to be um, the most kind of relevant. So last couple of slides here, I just thought I'd talk about a couple of the challenges um, there are in using higher education data. Um, so one of those is accessing data sets in that they come from a range of sources and they aren't all, strictly speaking, open data. Um, so the key information set pulls in the National Student Survey um, and the Destination of Leaders of Higher Education, that's the employment stuff, and then also the factual stuff from the institutions, so how much time to spend in study, blah, blah. And that you can access uh, via an open API, so that's straightforward. Um, we also look at labour force survey data, because that gives you a longer term indication of employment outcomes. Um, uh, and that's open, but by application to the Office of National Statistics. Um, and then there are two license data sets that we use as well. So one is the student record from ESA, um, and that's under license and that there's a, there's a fee attached and also um, very strict stipulations about how that data is used in particular in terms of disclosure um, and then application statistics what's from UCAS once again there's a fee attached to that well in fact we get all of our course fees from them as well um, but that's under a strict license as well so actually kind of getting access to all of those things in the first place to build up this kind of you know multi-dimensional picture is not necessarily just a straightforward case of you know, heading onto the internet and downloading those data sets. A little bit more work and, and actually some more money behind that. Um, and then linking those data sets um, is probably just the biggest challenge and anyone here who's sort of technical and works with data you know, um, probably knows that that can often be the case. Um, and there are a couple of things that make this relatively challenging. One is um, using data sets that span a number of years of intakes. So we actually, most of our data is actually based on uh, a rolling um, data set of five years to make it as robust as possible to try and limit um, the holes in it. Um, and what we do is we check for freshness, we check that over those five years we haven't had significant enough changes to, to make that invalid. Um, so um, what happens though is over five years, lots of things change in higher education systems of classification of, of subjects change, um, how
how courses are, uh, what courses are called, change, etc. So there's quite a lot to be done for that sort of historical longitudinal data set to kind of get that into one place. Um, and then linking between the different data sets um, is challenging because, so there's the joint academic coding system, which is the system by which courses are attributed to subjects. Um, and subjects um, are at different levels. You get the sort of very highest level, which might be kind of medicine, and then within that you'll have preclinical, and then within that you'll have something else, if you see what I mean. Um, and in a way, the, the tricky thing about that is really that it's quite open to, uh, to subjective interpretation. So how um, someone in an institution filling in their UCAS data might interpret a course in terms of that JAX classification might be quite different to how HESA does. So there are some anomalies that are thrown in through that. And then there's the standard occupational classifications, which um, is in terms of the employment outcomes, the type of work that you go on to do. Once again, that's a classification system that sort of um, has changed quite recently. Um, and, and that throws in a, another set of sort of um, dynamics, really. Um, and now I think the third challenge is really, um, yeah, the rules around non-disclosure, which are obviously completely valid and appropriate, um, but are often quite restrictive. Um, and also they vary from data set to data set. So the HESA student record has a different sort of set of rules, um, for instance, to um, the National Student Survey. Um, so once again, it's just making this data robust, but also, you know, disclosure rules are open to interpretation as well, so you can interpret them to the nth degree and find that you get very little data actually coming through. So there's also a pragmatism that has to be applied there. So where next for higher education open data? Well, contact hours and type of contact. Um, I've touched on it, we did the survey this year uh, we really want to see this stuff being supplied as part of the key information set. We don't see any reason why institutions aren't able to um, supply that information if they're able to supply the proportion of hours spent. Why not give the, the sort of total? Um, and um, at which, because we're both a, we're a campaigning and lobbying organisation, that's a piece of lobbying work that we're doing into Beers and Hefke, which is the um, English um, Funding Council. Um, sorry, I think I did... My bills are somewhere <laughs> out of order. Um, then, long-term employment outcomes. Well, um, recently, um, the question of where you went to university has been added to the Labour Force Survey. So pre previously, the Labour Force Survey could only give you indications, sort of generally, is what, what type of degree you did, what subject. Um, it couldn't be linked to where. So that's, that's a move in the right direction in terms of being able to see that longitudinal sort of path um, you know, somebody studied this at this institution, what were their outcomes? Um, but obviously it takes time, it takes a huge amount of time, you know, waves and waves of the Labour Force survey to actually then build up a sufficient sample to actually get any meaningful data out of that. Um, perhaps much more exciting, um, actually it's the last one, um, which I'll skip to. Oh no, hang on, sorry, I've got one more in there. It's this one. Um, is, um, potential for student loans company and income income tax data to be in the public domain. So this has recently been released for um, an academic study, um, really to map where you went to university, what you studied, to actually what did you end up earning, what did you end up doing? Because this isn't a survey, it's not like the, the Delhi survey where you know it's a sample of people telling you what they earned at six months. It 
is the record of what happens to that individual over time. It's very, very powerful data. So it's taken a long time um, uh, for the researchers, the academics um, that want to look at this data to persuade in, in particular um, the um, Treasury to sort of release the income tax data in particular. Um, but in so doing, for academic purpose, I'd like to think that there's an opportunity that that might eventually, in a, in a more aggregated form, come into the public domain, which would be very, very powerful, and that will be something that we'll also be kind of looking to lobby on. Um, educational outcomes. So recently, the National Student Database, which is everyone's um, educational kind of pathway up to the age of 18, um, is that has been linked to the ESA student record, which is then what happens after 18 in higher education. Um, and uh, I think that's still mainly for kind of research purposes. But once again, there could be something quite powerful there in terms of, you know, what your outcomes are depending on choices made throughout your education career path. Um, and then um, finally, cost of living data. So, you know, there is opportunity probably to do more, and this is just an example, with open data sets that are out there. So um, cost of living stuff from the ONS and then valuation office agency data around rental, etc. You could come up with an index about, you know, the living costs of different places uh, for students. Nobody's really done that yet. Um, so there are more opportunities out there. So in conclusion, uh, data can empower choice, um, but by itself it's not enough to truly empower consumers. I hope these are in the right order. Um, <laughs> there's still room uh, for more and better data about higher education. Any questions? Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.